Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome back to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. My guest this week is Mark Owen-Jones. Mark is an assistant professor in Middle East Studies at the Hamid bin Khalifa University in Qatar. He's a regular tweeter with a habit of getting under the bonnet of what's happening on Twitter and other social media platforms. Our conversation covers the emergence of fake journalists, the misinformation and disinformation landscape in the Middle East, and we pick apart trending moments on Twitter to ask why some things trend, why some things don't, and what's happening beneath the hashtags. Mark, thanks very much for joining me today. Uh, no problems. Thanks for having me. Um, I know you're in Qatar at the moment, but I noticed that uh, you did study at Exeter. And before we kicked off into the meat of the substance today, I wanted to ask if you had been in the country's most infamous Weatherspoons. Uh, the Imperial uh, at any point. Yes, I'd been there several times, actually. It was very close to university, so it was a sort of go-to place after work or for any conference. I heard at one point it was one of the biggest in the UK, but I don't know if that's true. So I don't know if it's one of the biggest. My understanding in my Weatherspoons trivia is that it was the first. Um, uh, and of course, it is the week that pubs reopened in the UK, so I thought it might make sense to kick off on a pub angle. Yeah, my advice would be just be careful of the seagulls because they're pretty ruthless. I, I, I spend a lot of my life trying to avoid seagulls at the best of times. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of seagulls there. Pubs also a good uh, a good spot for misinformation and disinformation to find their way around society. Um, <laughs> you're having an interesting week in that you're fresh from uh, appearing on the BBC yesterday to, to discuss a story about fake journalists. Um, can you kind of tell me a little bit about what you've what you've discovered? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it was a, this is interesting timing because I've spent the last three weeks uh, working with Adam Ronsley from the Daily Beast on this uh, bizarre investigation where we essentially found about uh, 19 fake journalists who had all created fake personas online and had all written uh, op-eds, opinion pieces for up to, I think it was about 46 different international publications and in total had contributed about 90 different articles. However, none of these journalists actually existed or were real. And yet they had somehow managed to to get their content into these relatively well-known or reputable uh, news outlets. Um, and they've been doing this now for about six months or had been doing this for about six months. And then uh, just at the end of our investigation, we contacted Twitter and they suspended their Twitter accounts. And uh, most of the outlets that they published in have either or um, a large majority of them have issued a retraction, but some have not. And some have even gone the opposite direction and not just not printed a retraction, but directly attacked me. 
and Adam for actually finding this out, which I thought was a, a novel approach, quite unexpected. So, I mean, this raises, uh, there's a lot of questions for off, off what you've just said, and I'll reel them off now and then maybe we can take them one by one. Um, you sure. know, one is like, how did people manage to create these these fake personas to an extent that established news sites are willing to publish them? Two is, what, what narrative were they pushing? Presumably they were there to, to push a narrative. And three is, yeah. you know, who are the sites that decided that they were going to kind of co-opt these pieces for themselves? Um, but let's start with with how they actually went about kind of building the backstory of a fake journalist well enough to to fool a professional news desk. So I think, I mean, this is an interesting question. I've been doing this more or less for about 10 years. About 10 years ago, I found one fake journalist who'd done something similar called Lillian Khalil. And actually, not much has changed since then. If you set up a Twitter account... If you set up a LinkedIn account and a Facebook account, what you're doing is, uh, you know, you're creating a paper trail, essentially, that uh, gives the illusion that you might be a real person, even though having a Facebook page or a LinkedIn profile, there's no guarantee that you're a real person. Absolutely not. But... If you're an editor who's under pressure and you might sort of do a quick search and you find a LinkedIn page and a Facebook profile, you might think, oh, hey, this person's real. More to the point, if you contact enough news outlets and if you start perhaps by doing rather mundane stories, maybe financial stories or stories that you might not think uh, are particularly notable in relatively unknown outlets who might be more desperate for copy, then you you start to build up a portfolio of, of content. And once you start building up a portfolio of content and pieces, you can then use that in your subsequent approaches to various editors and more reputable outlets. Because then not only are, are they Googling you and finding just social media profiles, but they're also finding that you've actually been published elsewhere, even if they're not particularly well-known outlets. Uh, and bear in mind, all these people, are, you know, they have the audacity to use photographs, um, some of which have been stolen from real people's uh, social media profiles, others which we believe are generated by artificial intelligence. So there is a, uh, there's, a, there's an image there which can help build trust. Uh, and there's a, more importantly, there's a kind of a paper trail, a breadcrumb trail of online evidence that suggests that that person could be a real person. And what sort of thing were these journalists saying? Are they, are they all, were they all writing along the same lines? Were they, do you think they were all kind of on the same page or have they all been pursuing different agendas? No, undoubtedly it was the same. I mean, sort of a number of reasons why you know this was a network. Firstly, there was a sort of nexus, a focal point online. They had created two ostensibly separate uh, web pages. One was called the Arab Eye, which dealt with uh, Arab-related issues and news. And the other was called Persia Now. And they actually had the same branding, but weren't ostensibly connected. But if you looked at the, the information, you could see that they shared Google Analytics code, SSL certificates. So we knew that they were uh, connected. Um, and also, these websites allowed them to build up their portfolio, during on my previous point. Um, but the editorial slant of these uh, websites was clear. They wanted more right-wing voices uh, reporting on the region. And, you know, if you lined up all the uh, 80 or so articles that they had written, there was a bit sort of mundane stuff on finance. But the strands that came out clearly were very obvious for, for someone like me who studies the Middle East, uh, indicative of, again, of Emirati or Saudi foreign policy. They basically singled out Iran. They were very critical of Iran and uh, Iranian influence in the region, particularly Iraq and Lebanon. They were very anti-Turkey's intervention in Libya. Uh, but more interestingly, they were very anti-Qatar. And that's quite a very, that's a specific foreign policy position that you generally see coming out of the United Arab Emirates, Saudi, Egypt and Bahrain, or very right-wing think tanks. But right-wing think tanks are only really invested in this kind of narrative 
you know, because it's it's the anti-Iranian nexus. It's become part of the anti-Iranian nexus. So they're clearly linked. Uh, there's no doubt in in my mind or Adam's mind that this was uh, a network that were all operating under the same kind of pretense. So that um, gives rise to a couple more questions for me. I mean, I'm, I'm put my cards on the table. I'm in no way an expert on the Middle East. It, in some respects, yeah. it's one part of the world that I know the least about, partly because it feels so complicated to try and understand more about. Um, right. And but I I, um, I do wonder if you could just kind of quickly paint a picture of the the fault lines of disinformation in the Middle East and the kind of geopolitics, just quickly, who are the main players and how do things tend to paint as a sketch of where people tend to be competing in the information space? Yeah, I think the crucial thing that happened uh, in 2017 was that uh, Bahrain, UAE, Saudi and Egypt basically uh, initiated a blockade of Qatar, supporting terrorism through its media outlets, Al Jazeera Arabic and whatnot. Uh, I'm not necessarily disputing that that couldn't you couldn't interpret it like that, but it's it's uh, it's interesting because we all, we obviously know that um, a lot of the Saudi-based channels, for example, also do the same. But what that led to, the 2017 crisis, which is still ongoing, has essentially led to a cold war between Qatar on one side, who are allies or kind of allies with Turkey and to an extent Iran, versus Saudi, Bahrain, Egypt and the UAE. And the resources of uh, Saudi and the UAE, they have poured resources into and PR on social media in particular. Um, let's not forget that Qatar have had a history because they have Al Jazeera. They've they've been sort of dominant in the legacy media sphere. So I think what we're seeing online, in particular in the Arabic information sphere, or at least Middle East politics, is the foreign policy interests of Saudi and the Emirates being reflected very much in these kind of strange disinformation campaigns that we see. For example, um, in the past year, two years, Twitter have only suspended, in, in terms of Arabic countries, Arab countries, they've only suspended uh, accounts connected to Egypt, the Emirates and Saudi. Um, so we know even from these takedowns, for example, that there is a lot of propaganda being deployed through, through social media uh, from these countries. I tend to assume in a lot of respects that kind of everybody's at it um, to yeah. some degree. And so I'm sure that, that I'm sure that, um, you know, it, I, I'll say this and won't ask you to comment, but I'm sure that in, in their defense, Qatar, no doubt, thinks about the information space and was thinking about that when it established Al Jazeera. Um, you mentioned the kind of in these with these fake journalists that were set up to, to write comment pieces and kind of seed narratives into the media that they tended to be right wing. Now, is that a reflection of right wing? Is that a reflection of the kind of conception of right wing as we know it in the States or in Europe? And or, or is there is that kind of right wing playing out within a Middle Eastern context? And if it is, how is that different? It's a good question, and it's a it's a very interesting one because yes, there are those distinctions between how we might see the right wing in the U.S. or the U.K. and the Middle East. But what's happening? Where these journalists targeted relatively often relatively new publications in order to appeal to the U.S. right, right? So what we're seeing here is an overlap between interests in the Gulf, in particular, and, and the U.S. right. So what's important to, to know about the political crisis here with regards to the information sphere is that, again, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi have supported Donald Trump. They have um, generally favored the Republican Party because under Obama, Obama was very kind of um, – he was essentially less 
friendly and less chummy with with Saudi than the Saudis would have liked. And the same with the Emiratis. So it's in their interest, basically, to promote uh, this right wing movement as it is in the US under Donald Trump, because Donald Trump has shown himself to be a very strong ally of Saudi and the Emirates. So I think what's what we're seeing here is actually an attempt that looks like it's coming out of the Gulf to uh, influence US public opinion on the region in order to um, to kind of to curry favor with with the US right. Um, and it's it's working to an extent. I mean, it, on a separate note, you know, I see on Twitter a lot this overlap between this Make America Great Again community and, you know, some sort of pro Saudi entities online. There's some strange things happening on Twitter. So it's a very interesting kind of time in terms of this overlap between the region and the US right wing. And that overlap, uh, particularly in this sort of social media space, you do a particular type of analysis of social media conversations. Mm. Just to explain a little bit about that overlap. Is it is the same actors playing into totally separate debates or what's the... Yeah, it's, 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 it can be hard to determine because a lot of the, the content that we see on social media, particularly Twitter, is from... Uh, accounts that are hard to actually find the provenance of. You can know their political allegiance because that's very clear from the biographies. You know, it say be pro-Trump, it will have make America great again, keep America great. Um, one of these comments and a picture of an American eagle, for example, thousands of these type of accounts, all promoting specific messages. And often, apart from one or two kind of well-known interlocutors, including Donald Trump himself, Seb Gorka, the, the majority of the messaging online seems to come from a lot of these kind of nebulous looking accounts, um, which is interesting in itself. And you're seeing increasing interactions between what appear to be American accounts and Arabic language accounts. And just before we move on, why did you decide you wanted to study Middle East politics in the first place? Uh, so I grew up, I'm, I was born in London, but when I was six months old, we moved to Saudi Arabia because of my dad's job. He was an engineer. So I lived in Saudi for three years. And then from Saudi, we moved to Bahrain in about 1988. And then I spent most of my schooling there. And I'd always just been interested in it. I always wanted to kind of understand the place I grew up more. So when I started my PhD, my PhD was actually on uh, political repression in Bahrain. And then from there on, I've just uh, I've gone down the Middle East road in terms of studies. I've studied Arabic. You know, there's no going back now. How about the disinformation route? What what was it that sort of started to lead you down there? Ah, well, I, I can answer that one quite succinctly. I hope. Um, I don't know if you've seen the film Shattered Glass. No. <laughs> it was it was a real it's a true story. It was about a um, American journalist who wrote for the New Republic, and it sort of they made a film about this. But it transpired that this journalist, Stephen Glass, had been fabricating dozens of stories for the New Republic. And he was eventually found out uh, by this, at the time, a new online news site. I think it was Forbes. And I always find that story just fascinating. Um, and that really just got me interested in truth, deception. And I should ask, the when... Um... When you found the fake journalist stories, I think yeah. um, one of them one of them were published on Spiked in the, the UK. Listeners all recognise, um, yes, and then absolutely. one of them published on a one or two sort of libertarian US sites as well. Yeah, so Spiked Online, as as I think many of your listeners would know, um, published uh, two articles by one of the fake journalists whose name was Joyce Toledano. Um, interestingly, we spiked. 
they acknowledged that there had been an investigation into to Joyce uh, that deemed that she did not exist. But Spike decided to leave a note up and keep the articles up, citing transparency, uh, which I thought was an unusual approach, to say the least. I, I don't think it was an appropriate response at all. It's a weird um, decision. They also went after you a little bit. I should say that they, they essentially said that you were funded by the Qatari government and therefore a stooge. Yeah, so this was Human Events, which is uh, an American site that is, uh, I think it was set up by someone called Will Chamberlain, who's also a lawyer, apparently. And uh, that was quite, I was quite shocked when one of the editors of Human Events told me to go and fuck myself uh, after this expose was was published. Uh, and then one of the, the, the founder, Will Chamberlain, he went on this massive rant, created a Twitter thread uh, about about the whole thing, and then started doing ad hominem attacks on me because I worked in Qatar. And, you know, the most insane thing about about their reaction was that they acknowledged that, you know, this Joyce Toledano had also wrote for them or written for them was fake. Uh, but they decided to keep up the articles because they agreed with the message or, or they found it to be factually accurate, which I thought was absolutely bizarre because, one, this was an opinion piece and you can't judge an opinion piece based on, on facts. And, you know, I looked at the piece itself and it's fairly atrocious. So I think, you know, it's a very good example of someone saying, well, this conforms to what I believe in. So I, because I believe it, I'm going to keep up, even though it was clearly or this operation is clearly a state sponsored disinformation campaign. I'm like, how can an outlet, you know, justify that? I think it's absolutely not only justify it, but literally start attacking the people who've exposed it. I guess Um, uh, in some ways it's confirmation that the strategy of the campaign was was on the money in the first place. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it is in a way. And I should it's say just, as well that uh, yeah. it presents an interesting one for kind of at times when truth and truth and so on and how you discern the truth are challenging. You know, ultimately, I guess your work is probably funded by the Qatari government through the university. But at the same time, the, the transparency of that work on this speaks to me quite loudly, as opposed to the, the kind of approach taken by a site like Human Events. Um, but everybody can, everybody can throw mud at everybody, and there's always a kernel of truth in everything. So it's a kind of a good example of getting sucked into something that it's almost impossible to defend 100%. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think there's... A- yeah, there's there's always you know there's a kernel of truth in everything, but um, you know it's always problematic. I think there's a tendency for when I was on the BBC yesterday, the final question was was to me was you know you work in Qatar, so you know did a Qatari person tip you off? I'm like no, you know, and I can understand the need to, for balance uh, in asking these questions, but at the same time it becomes problematic just to to assume that because someone lives or works somewhere that they will have an automatic bias. Uh, and I think that was quite odd. I mean, what I think surprised me most about Will Chamberlain's response was simply that he basically said that the the provenance of the person didn't matter. He's like, it doesn't matter who this journalist is, if she's fake or not, because we agree with the piece. And then he proceeded to attack me based on who I was, which I thought was quite a, a kind of paradox, especially coming from a lawyer, you know. It's a great example of some of the games that are being played out there at the moment. Um Discovering this is a kind of example of some of the levels of coordination and kind of modest sophistication. It's not actually that hard to do, I guess, if you've got right. time, if you've got the time to do it. Um, no. That are playing out in 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 what you kind of observe in disinformation in the Middle East. Is the Middle East following or leading, or is it a bit of both in terms of um, being being ahead of the game on new tactics in disinformation? 
Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think there's a tendency to focus on what China are doing, what Russia are doing, perhaps what the U.S. are doing in the disinformation sphere. Uh, I think what we see in the Middle East is it's a bit of both, but it's quite a unique ecosystem. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is on the in terms of being on the radar of. Uh, government, social media companies, it's quite on the periphery. So things seem to happen here, uh, you know, in a different way and with less accountability. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're limited by what you can actually do on certain platforms and on social media. But I would certainly say that the uh, tactics that I've seen over the past few years have unique elements to them. Um, and I think this investigation in terms of the fake journalists, uh, I'm sure it happens elsewhere and we've seen it on small scale. But I think something to on, on this scale is new and novel. Um, and while it's crude, uh, I don't think any of these operations ever done in isolation. I think this kind of operation would have acquired decent English speakers. Um, it could have, you know, it was probably done with the help of some PR company, whether that PR company was European or the US, I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, absolutely. We, we do see a crossover of tactics. And, you know, authoritarian regimes in particular, all governments learn from each other. So, you know, when they see one disinformation campaign happening somewhere, undoubtedly that will influence a, a, a government somewhere else so that they don't happen in isolation. It's interesting your point about how um, sometimes things that happen in the Middle East sort of happen on the periphery of the policy conversations around kind of social media and disinformation. This series we're doing partly in conjunction with ODI's Digital Societies team, and it's come up yeah. before that there are parts of the world in which these problems are just as manifest, but the degree of atten political attention and sort of policy focus is is a long way behind what we see in Eastern Europe or the US. Um, and, and, that, and that's another example of that. One of the things you're really good at, Mark, from my observation, is kind of digging around on Twitter and, and doing a bit of analysis off your own back of what's going on. Um, in really broad terms, how do you how do you do that? What do you keep an eye out for? What's your kind of MO when it comes to spotting stuff? It's a, it's a good question. You know, like when I look back on investigations, I sometimes think, how did that come up? Or how did I come across that? Um, and, you know, some of it, I know this might sound ridiculous, is instinct and experience. Um, I realized back in 2011 when I first discovered this uh, fake journalist that I'm pretty good at telling if something's amiss. And in this recent investigation, you know, initially I was like, this just something isn't right. And as soon as I have that feeling, I know it's worth looking at. Um, and the more I've accrued followers, you know, the more sometimes people give give me tips or whatnot. Um, and, and, you know, they might say, what about looking at this? And, you know, 90 percent of the time it's, it doesn't go anywhere. But a lot of the time it is it is just instinct. Um and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting what you can know instinctively. Like, for example, a month ago, I woke up and something was trending in Qatar. It said that there's been a coup in Qatar. And my first thought wasn't that there's been a coup. My first thought was, OK, there's a disinformation campaign about a coup. So part of the way I think now has become quite cynical. But also that can be quite useful because it makes you incredibly critical of a lot of things going on. And also there's a wealth experience, I suppose. I've been doing this now for, for quite a few years. Uh, I've been on Twitter. Uh, you, you sometimes know what to look for, you know? I know that might not be a satisfying answer, but... <laughs> you dig around the data as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, data is key. That, you know, it's, it's changed a bit. I mean, the, the recent investigation into the fake journalists obviously involved data, but that was more social engineering. Data is very useful... Um, it, it can't always give you a smoking gun, but it can help describe a lot of trends. So, I, I, you know, I've done a lot of data analysis of the UK elections. You know, I, I can sort of answer various questions of who is tweeting, for example, about this topic? Uh, you know, what kind of biographical details do they have? 
and you know is like who spread this fake story and and how long did it take before it get corrected right you can use data to answer these kind of questions which i think are very important questions because so much of the time on social media so especially twitter you can see something trend but you don't necessarily know why it's trending you know who's actually boosting this message and i think these kind of questions are things people want to know and how would you summarize the main kind of constituencies take the uk as an example how would you summarize the main twitter constituencies well i think my, my sense of twitter in the uk particularly is that i think it's generally more uh, progressive or left-wing that's certainly my experience having said that i think because of that what that creates is a very uh, concentrated very active but perhaps smaller core group of right-wing accounts that are very active i mean what i th- thought was interesting about the uk election a lot of the accounts that were boosting Boris Johnson's messages about a hard Brexit and that kind of stuff were American-based accounts, Trump-supporting accounts. So what we're seeing now is that because of the way the internet works is there's kind of a despatialization of people's uh, political concerns. And we're seeing a combination of trolls, probably malicious actors, but also real people getting involved in political issues beyond their beyond their own borders, you know. So even in the Canadian elections, the UK elections, and even on the Iran issue, I saw these groups of pro-Trump accounts all being very active, which I thought was fascinating because, um, one, it sort of suggests that, well, politics has gone global but also in in my view this was probably also an influence operation that someone was that's and that's my question is is what what's your sense of so those accounts that kind of are are willing and able to engage in different geopolitical or different conversations in different parts of the world about different political issues at different times Mm. to what degree are they globally aware organic libertarian mm. right wingers or you know or or hard left yeah yeah absolutely and um, or, or yeah, are they just kind of bot accounts and they they're bot herds that jump in on different conversations well there's a combination of both uh, i would certainly say in terms of the right wing element i would i find it largely unusual that uh, maybe uh, a lot of, for example, your classic Trump supporters, and I don't mean this in an offensive way, would suddenly be interested in the regime change in Iran. Um, but what I think is the the modus operandi of a lot of these groups now is you have people who are malicious actors, perhaps working on behalf of a state or an organization, who infiltrate networks of legitimate people. Uh, and then become very influential within these networks and then spread messages. So, for example, if I was uh, uh, worked for, say, some consultants in the U.S. and I wanted to promote Trump's message on social media, you know, I might start building a following online, uh, getting uh, spreading this message about foreign policy amongst a very kind of coherent group of activist accounts. And then I would then become the dominant node in that network. So I could say, oh, let's tweet about Iran. And then that would subsequently get my followers and other people tweeting about Iran. Uh, so I think the way that actual disinformation networks or, or these influence campaigns work is a combination of these different elements. Yes, you do get bots and definitely you get trolls. But my, my sense is that it's a combination of real people trolls infiltrated by um, people with specific agendas. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I wanted to ask you about some of the stories that have come to the fore in the last couple of months that I know you've had reflections on or dug around on a little yeah. bit. Um, just to see if there's any sort of interesting kernels that, that stayed with you from what you looked at. Um, yeah. First example being the um, the kind of Bill, the Bill Gates conspiracy um, okay. and the idea that, that Bill Gates manufactured coronavirus to make even more money from a new vaccine. <laughs> That was a yeah. That was a that was a good one. There was, well, I mean, what was interesting about that? That seemed to sort of uh, rear its head several months ago, and it, you know, along with things like Pizzagate and other conspiracies, there's um, this was kind of abetted by by actual real people. We had a, a verified Twitter account belonging to a someone running for Congress in Los Angeles who spread the story that you know Bill Gates was uh, part of this conspiracy. Not only Bill Gates, but obviously George Soros because he's always used in these conspiracies and. The the Pope, right? So, so all these, you know, engaged in trying to kind of create a big drama around coronavirus in order to, to facilitate sales. And then what you tend to see with a lot of these conspiratorial tropes around 5G and coronavirus, Bill Gates, you know, the Chinese virus, it does have an ideological bent to it. There's no doubt about it. This isn't a bipartisan conspiracy theory. The accounts that you see spreading it are QAnon accounts, Make America Great Again accounts, almost always. Right? If you do a, a network analysis of the accounts that spread these messages, biographically, the most cohesive communities within them are QAnon and Make America Great Again, pro-Trump accounts, right-wing accounts, right? And there must be a reason for that. What do you think the reason is? Um, I think, again, I think some people, some of these people are manipulated, but at the same time, I think it's part of the whole, it's part of the whole fabric around Trump. I mean, Trump is someone who's come to power on a lie. He has managed to fool people to thinking that he's anti-establishment when he's the very epitome of the establishment. So I think, you know, it's very easy for people to believe. I think there's a certain subset of people who, who support Trump, who will uh, believe things that are the antithesis of what would be the truth, simply because they've lost trust in institutions um so i think in some ways it makes sense um but there's something i think there's something more sinister going on you know i think there's an attack on 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 and how we see i mean we live in a post-truth age right and part of this is an attack on the very institutions you know like for example nigel farage's attack on we're sick of experts there's an attack on established institutions established norms that allow for the proliferation of these kind of conspiracy theories and when you have a president or the most powerful man in the world 
playing fast and loose with the truth. I think it, it, it kind of confounds people's sense of reality. I, I definitely agree with that. What I can't get a handle on is to what degree is that by accident or design? Um, because yeah. it, it is definitely the case that institutions are being undermined. It, and it feels like, and I say this as someone who, everybody listening to this show knows this by now, generally consider myself to be fairly centre-left in my politics. Yeah. Um, and it feels like there's a deliberate political strategy of the libertarian right to undermine institutions. That said, I also think that the nature of our information ecosystem intrinsically makes it really hard to know what to trust and what to believe because of the kind of proliferation of information and the proliferation of context around that information that isn't a that's not a political strategy it might be smart political strategy to lean into it but it, that isn't a strategy that's kind of an, a result of chaos uh, yeah i think i mean there's there's always design in elements of this but you know there's always an element of again as you said chaos but i mean what we're seeing that's different now really is the nature of uh, media. I don't think strategies are fundamentally trained, changed. I mean, when we look at the history of the Iraq War and the WMD pretext, go back to Vietnam and look at the Gulf of Tonkin, you know, go back to the first Gulf War, you look at the role of British PR companies in trying to accentuate a lie about babies being killed in incubators by the Iraqis. Lies and, and misinformation have always been there. But <laughs> Traditionally, they've been channeled through legacy media institutions, right? So it, a lot of these lies have been more centralized, more controlled through through certain outlets. Now, what I think we're seeing, um, we're seeing a kind of, uh, you know, a decentralization of this ability to lie. And what we're seeing is new influences crop up who are also perpetuating the same tactics. So what we're seeing is far more centers, far more nodes, far more little uh, communities of, of where people can spread lies. You know, it's less centralized. This echoes with uh, something that Pete Pomerantsev was saying in the first episode mm. of this series, where he said in a, in a very non-Twitter friendly way that everybody <laughs> is a little Goebbels now. Um, which yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't translate into text very well in the current environment. But I, I, you know, I understood the point that he was making. I, I wanted to ask you about a different hashtag uh, that, for different reasons as well. So uh, it's the scum media hashtag, um, which which keeps popping up uh, when the UK government is put under political pressure <laughs> by journalists. Right. Um, and I know you've had a route around that. What have you found? There's definitely something strange going on with the scum media hashtag. So it seemed to crop up when Dominic Cummings was under fire. Uh, and, you know, what we know from Dominic Cummings being under fire for his trip during lockdown and his breach of the rules was that generally across the UK, there was quite a lot of bipartisan uh, support for him being fired. Yet if you looked online, there was a really, co you know, sort of dense effort to try and defend him. And this is what the scum media hashtag initially was, defending Dominic Cummings, which seemed very improbable, you know, who would be defending Dominic Cummings. And none of the people who were, or very few of the people who were promoting this hashtag appeared to be real, or I say real people, they weren't verified. It was, there was no really high profile people promoting it, bar one or two UKIP members. And there was a couple of dodgy looking accounts uh, who seem to have instigated this trend, right? One of the accounts that I found promoting it was clearly lying about uh, who he was in a number of ways. I mean, he said to me, I'd made some comment about the hashtag, I can't remember what it was. And then he sort of accused me 
of being racist um, because he said he was a mixed race. And then, you know, he was obviously trying to goad me. But I went back to his timeline where he, he claimed then he was white and there was all these inconsistencies. And then I went even further back and he had also claimed during the Manchester bombings that one of his relation, one of his, I think, cousins or something had been, you know, killed or injured in the Manchester bombings. And that turned out also not to be true. Uh, and he was a very influential member of this kind of scum media thing. And then that got me thinking that a lot of the people who were po- probably part of that hashtag were sort of rabble rousers or they, you know, they were basically there to uh, promote a certain kind of message. And they didn't seem like they were real people because their stories were generally inconsistent and incoherent. Which which could be, and I... I'm thinking about an episode of Government vs. Rebels. We talked to Samuel Woolley, who's uh, an author and professor at the Center for Media Engagement in Texas. He was talking, and it struck me that there is, you know, smart political strategy is to plan for bad events and think about what your immediate online response to that might be. So, you know, if you're a politician and you know that there are six things that your government, if if you're responsible for communications around the government and you know that there are six bad stories lying in wait... And yeah. when one of those stories breaks, you need an immediate strategy to try and defuse it. One right. element of that strategy now is almost certainly to try and plant some diversionary content on social and get it spreading. Yeah, well, okay, there's no doubt in my mind that you need a social media message, right? You need to you need to control or at least uh, influence social media in order as part of any strategy now with information. Part of this would seem that it would be likely. I, I, I'd be very, I find it hard to believe that, that someone isn't, someone, for example, that isn't connected to Dominic Cummings in some way is not behind this. However, I think what shocks me is the kind of aggressive nature of these campaigns. I mean, the scum media hashtag was very aggressive, right? So if you're a government strategist, how do you deal with the problem? Do you deal with it by trying to, uh, you know, put out press releases, uh, try to calm people down, try to use delaying tactics, or do you go on this all-out offensive? Because... I, I do believe that the offensive element is is plausible because we saw immediately the government attacking the BBC during this whole saga. And to me, that was clearly a, a strategy. You know, you attack the BBC to try and limit their criticism. You, you threaten them in, in order that they ask softer questions, right? So I, I think what we've seen post-Brexit and uh, there's been a sort of gloves-off approach, I think, with with the kind of ethics around how people approach the information sphere. And also, let's not forget, there could be a devolved sense of this. You know, how do we know, for example, that the government haven't contracted an agency to do information operations? How much say or how much no, you know, how much involvement does the government actually have with that company? And this company could be doing all sorts of things. The, the whole nature of this is subterfuge, right? It's it's deception. I mean, I try not to, I try not to go too far down the Dominic Cummings as bogeyman kind of potential conspiracy route. That said, I would agree that um, smart political communication strategy involves having a prepared plan to try and divert attention or manufacture simultaneous outrage. Um, and, 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 And how that's done and who it's done by and if it's done, I don't know. But I suspect we will discover more in the months ahead. I hope so. I wanted to um to just quickly ask you, one of the things that I'm sort of running around my head is is actually on a related point. It's kind of how do you do communications in an era of misinformation and disinformation? So having worked in think tanks and politics for the last 15 years, I'm kind of f- very familiar with the with a vertical model of communications, which is quite top down. And, you know, facts and evidence are a really important part of that. And 
this is a small thing, but I'm convinced that the, the different tactics are necessary to to cut through. Um, and I've noticed that you have pulled together all of your. You're a very big threader on Twitter. I, I am. I don't know how that started, but it's but more last so, year, I think. even more so than than as a blogger. You know, five years ago, I think you'd have been a blogger. Yeah. Um, I and I just blog. wondered how those threads work for you. You know, I I don't even know why I started doing threading, but um, I think you know, like I remember blogging. I used to blog about Bahrain, right? And I think there's two elements here. There's an a sense of immediate impact and gratification that you get from putting on Twitter because you know people acknowledge it, right? Uh, people can retweet, they share it. But it seems that Twitter is more the space for those immediate discussions and the replies. It's far more intuitive and interactive. And I found that with a lot of my threads, especially during the election, uh, the UK elections last year, they tend to get a lot of attention. So I feel that it seems to be a good space for distributing that information. And what what it leads to as well is, you know, legacy media getting in touch or journalists getting in touch. It allows you to create and, and grow your networks uh, and therefore sort of spread your message, I think, in a, in a more effective way, certainly a more immediate way. You've pulled them all together onto your website. <laughs> well, yeah. So someone kindly and, and uh, you know, this is, again, one of the positive aspects, I suppose, of social media. Someone got in touch and they created a Google spreadsheet of all my threads. Right. So I, I embedded it on my website and I try and update it. Uh, which I thought was very nice of them. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I, but it's, I definitely, I think the, it's, it's just one of those interesting little examples of how that sort of norms of what it is to be effective in your communications are shifting. And it's something I noticed you were doing and wanted to reflect on. Um, what do you think is kind of coming next in the disinformation space? What What are you currently thinking uh, you're looking for proof of at the moment that you suspect might be going on? Uh, well, there's one th- interesting thing that I'm, I'm looking at, I mean, I used to do a lot of research on bots. And as you know, bots is often used liberally these days to mean a lot of things. Um, but I think that the, the big problems we're coming up against now is obviously one, artificial intelligence. I mean, what was interesting about the the investigation I did with the Daily Beast was that a lot of the journalists were probably using artificially generated human faces as profile pictures, which is quite astonishing. And obviously with improvements in video uh, in artificial intelligence, that's going to become a lot more of a thing. So I think that's something we need to keep an eye on. But the other things that I think are interesting is social engineering. I mean, I had a tip off recently about a network of uh, mostly American-based being, you know, citizens, the real people, who have been co-opted by what appears to be a network based out of Saudi to promote kind of um, Saudi foreign policy. So the whistleblower came forward and saying that people who usually have right-wing accounts, you know, make America great accounts, are being approached by these group of people and being asked to spread specific videos who record themselves uh, narrating kind of scripts. And I, and I came across one of these videos and it was this uh, person lying on a bed who was reading a very detailed and very specifically researched account of Ilhan Omar's, you know, the American congresswoman, about some sort of gerrymandering or electoral manipulation going on there. Um, and it was someone who you wouldn't necessarily expect to to know the minutiae of electoral politics in it, where Ilanoma lives, just obviously reading the script. Uh, and it was fascinating to me because what this is showing is that, you know, it's harder to detect. You can't call out real people for being fake or bots. They're real people. Uh, and if they're spreading specific information, even if it's either disinformation or propaganda, that's not necessarily illegal. I mean, in the American context, it might be a problem if they're receiving money. They might fall foul of, uh, you know, the FARA, you know, the kind of law on foreign agents. However, 
it's going to be hard because if people are informally getting some sort of reward or compensation for spreading propaganda and they're real people, it's going to be much harder to combat. And we're seeing that happen now. And it's very hard to detect the scale of the operation. Have we seen people be normal people being rewarded? Yeah, well, in in this case, because obviously, unless you have someone who's directly been rewarded and it tells you, it's hard to see. But in this case, it appears that the people who have been involved have taken trips to Saudi Arabia. So at least you could argue that the reward has been a, potentially a trip. There has to be some incentive for this. Um, I always try and end a government versus the robots interview on a sort of positive note about right. things that can be done or things that are happening uh, to make us hope that things can get a bit better. And I'm kind of, I increasingly feel like that has been sort of driven at how do we get things back to normal? And I'm increasingly of a mindset that like this is now normal and we have to move things forward rather than backwards. Um, But what, what in your kind of day to day work gives you grounds for optimism in thinking that, that we can kind of make sense of post truth um, so that it's not post anything anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, as someone who's naturally cynical, I think it's important to remind ourselves of, uh, of positives. And I think, you know, I've uh, I met lots of people, including yourself, who are either addressing uh, disinformation, tackling it. Uh, I think podcasts like this, for example, are improving media literacy. You can't see the world as traveling in one direction and, like you said, reverting to it at one point back in time. The world changes and we have to adapt to it. Uh, and, and the process of adaptation I've seen is is quite encouraging. I've met so many great people who are doing a lot. And even now, I mean, I'm very cynical of the social media companies, but we've seen public pressure lead to them trying to change policy. You know, I've been involved at the EU, uh, the European External Action Service, and trying to formulate policy, tackling disinformation. You know, I've had some interactions with policymakers there, people from Facebook, for example, who've been very positive and receptive to a lot of ideas. I don't necessarily think they're doing enough, but at the same time, we are seeing uh, people paying attention to these facts. And I think on a sort of broader level, I think media literacy is something that uh, we can see promoted and we should encourage. And we're seeing more and more of it. And, uh, and more to the point, these network of informal networks, you, you meet people online who are doing their bit to try and tackle disinformation, uh, whether it's by infiltrating dodgy networks or just exposing or raising awareness about certain issues. And I think that's nice because it's sort of a, a kind of community activity in many ways. And, and that's what it was always touted as. Social media was always touted as something that could actually generate communities. And I think for a while we saw less of that. But in many ways they are existing and they're flourishing. Great stuff. Mark, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great speaking to you as well, Jonathan. That's all for this week. Watch out for the first Government versus the Robots thread on Twitter. As ever, my thanks to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, you can leave us a review and you can follow us on Twitter at G-O-V-T underscore V-S underscore Robots. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.